For the past couple weeks, I've been using Harper Valley PTA as the gateway into a conversation about hit country songs. Shelby Singleton showed us what a real promo person will do behind the scenes to make a hit happen. Jeannie C. Riley showed us plenty of the downsides to being used as the pretty face for a hit. How roughly the business can put you back down after it's lifted you so high. The writer of Harper Valley PTA, Mr. Tom T. Hall, I think he can show us some things about how most bands experience hit country songs. Country Music Radio. One reason this podcast will never do an episode on someone who wasn't impacting country music before the year 2000 is that it's impossible to tell who won a war until after the war is over. Every generation of country music radio has been a war. Those of you old enough to be paying attention in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s know how much perspective on the genre is gained with the passing of time. What is this real country music? Can anyone define what it sounds like? I'm sure many of you remember in the 90s, older country artists talked a lot of trash about what was being played on the radio. Waylon Jennings may never have really used that extremely vulgar simile to describe Garth Brooks' music, but he did say very critical things about Garth Brooks. Now, you go listen to the trash Luke Bryan puts out and tell me that doesn't make Garth Brooks sound like Buck Owens. Well, that's not what a lot of fans of real country music thought in the 90s when Garth Brooks ruined country radio. When loving turns to parting, I'm always first too late. Cause when it comes to heartaches, I'd rather give than to be saved. I've never cried myself sleep just praying I'll get through. I've never lost it, love not counting you. Or in the 80s, when Urban Cowboy ruined country radio. Or in the 70s, when Olivia Newton-John won a CMA award for Most Promising Female Vocalist of the Year, and a bunch of traditional country acts like Porter Wagner and Conway Twitty all got together at George Jones and Tammy Wynette's house to form the Association of Country Entertainers to protest smooth pop ruining country radio. Let me be. But in the 60s, the Nashville sound had already ruined country radio. Well, this is it. That day is here. It's no surprise, and yet I can't hold back the tears. 
And that started in the 50s because Elvis Presley ruined country radio. The day she went away, I made myself a that I soon forget with men. But something sure is wrong. Cause I'm so blue and lonely for a dark number to forget. When drums started showing up on more country records in the 40s, well, it flat out ruined country radio. Every Saturday night, they do a barn dance upright to the Tennessee polka. Cut a rug on the floor with the one you adore to the Tennessee polka. Every girl has her bow and her heart is aglow. Dancing the Tennessee polka. They come all the way from anywhere, USA. To the Tennessee polka. And that only happened because in the 1930s, people like Bob Wills couldn't settle the hell down and play some nice pure country music like Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of mine. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way, if we keep on the sunny side of life. I'm not sure there's ever been a time that country radio wasn't hated by the fans of the previous generation's country music. Ask a fan from any point in history to define the sound of country music, and they're likely to say something along the lines of, well, it's sure not what they're playing on the radio these days. Charm and it's I see a few things happening here. One, country music is a traditional genre. You can easily trace its sonic roots and performative function at least back to the troubadour ballads of the Middle Ages in Europe. At every phase of its evolution between then and now, there's been a tug-of-war with tradition holding one end of the rope and creativity holding the other. This is art. Artists want to explore their medium and they are inherently influenced by the world around them, which is different for every artist and changes every day. The progression of technology speeds up this entire process. For a lot of people, the devolution of country music goes hand in hand with musicians and producers being able to create sounds they've never heard before. Give a kid a toy and they're gonna play with it. If the kid makes country music, it's guaranteed to piss off some people listening to their radio. This is why there's always been some movement of relative outsiders keeping alive the quote-unquote real country from the sidelines. Neo-traditionalist in the 80s and 90s. Well, I'm just a working man's dollar in the pocket of his old blue jeans. I ain't like my Wall Street brother. He's in a bank so shiny and clean. Well, I'm faded and I'm wrinkled, tattered and stained with sweat. But I'm the first one called when Uncle Sam needs a hand with the national debt. So-called outlaws in the 70s and 80s. Texas law says. She better be single Or her old man Can use his gun 
And Texas law says he can kill you legal So the Texas lover better live on the run The Bakersfield sound of the 50s and 60s Some of the people in these movements did have commercial success. But some of the greatest country music ever was made by people you've never heard on the radio. People who built underground followings, often through constant touring, often staying on the road until age or illness physically prevented them from going on. That being said, talking about commercial success or the lack thereof is essentially the only way we can discuss this past with objectivity. Everything else is just me telling you what I do and don't like, or you telling me the same thing. Comparing record sales and radio hits, though by no means a pristine data point, is the closest thing we have to a measuring tool for this music. Now another problem with country radio is a problem with all of radio. The story of music radio from its beginning until now is a story of homogenization. Decades ago, we were able to turn a knob, find a DJ who'd earned our trust by being the first person to play our favorite songs when nobody else was playing them. That DJ would say, hey, listen up, here's the new thing, and we would listen. If you want to read about why that doesn't happen on big radio stations anymore, go read about the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Those bastards deregulated how many radio stations could be owned by the same corporate entity, and all of a sudden, your playlist started being handed down from HQ. The radio stations, the publicists, the record labels. Now, it's all just a big machine. Tom Petty made an entire album about this called The Last DJ in 2002. I promise you, things have not improved. Here's the title track. There goes the last DJ Who plays what he wants to play And says what he wants to say Hey, hey, hey And there goes your freedom of choice There goes the last human voice Clear Channel banned it for being anti-radio. There goes the last DJ this sounds pretty pro-radio to me, or at least what radio should be. This is another reason why it's only worth talking about what singles were radio hits up to a certain point. Because after that point, they're basically just letting us know what they've decided the new hits will be. This brings us back to technology. We don't need real DJs on the radio anymore because now they're on the internet and we call them curators and tastemakers. The internet gives everyone an equal chance to be heard. It sure does, but almost nobody is listening. There's an unprecedented amount of noise competing for our attention online. How many of us are really digging any deeper than what gets put in front of our faces? 
Hey, maybe you are, but you're very much the exception. It's easy to assume everyone else is doing what we're doing, listening to podcasts on our smartphones, checking that indie reviewer's Twitter account to see what's good, or listening to curated playlists to support baby bands. Most people who listen to music are not doing these things. According to the latest Nielsen research data I could find from August of 2017, over 80% of U.S. consumers aged 12 and older and 9 out of 10 teens are still listening to radio. 87.9% of Americans aged 12 to 17 listen to 10 hours of radio a week. 75% of adults listen to radio in their car. If that big machine decides kazoos are the next trend in country music, guess what's happening next year? It'll be you and me complaining and kazoo country blaring out of every college party. The internet can't stop it. I'm not saying this is anything new, but now the machine is bigger than ever and it's getting away with all the things it always wanted to do. Now to bring it all back home, why does this have to result in country music that isn't country music at all? Why can't they do everything they're doing with real country music that's good? One word, money. Pop music by definition outsells country music. When country music does pop sales figures, you'll see that country music on the pop charts. What possible reason would the big machine have for not wanting to be there? Tradition? Artistic integrity? Get real. Go the opposite direction. When country music comes nowhere near pop sales figures, the country artist who made it is in danger of losing their record deal. Like how Columbia Records dropped Johnny Cash in 1986. That happened. Okay, so you've got A&R people and you've got in-house producers working at these record labels, right? These are the people responsible for bringing these artists to the label in the first place. And they're influencing what kind of music they make. They want to look like they're good at their jobs by working with bands who move units and make money. Look at the list of people who always get the credit or the blame for the Nashville sound. That first great banishment of country music sounds from country music radio. It was all producers and suits at the label. Owen Bradley, Bob Ferguson, Steve Scholes. The only one who'd ever really been on the other side of a record deal, Chet Atkins, was very much acting as a producer here. All the chapel bells were ringing In the little valley town And the song that they were singing was for baby Jimmy Brown Then the little congregation Prayed for guidance from above Lead us not into temptation Bless this hour of meditation Guide him with eternal love The Nashville sound wasn't an organic evolution of country music from artists exploring their creativity. It was another form of homogenization, a calculated effort to decountrify country and sell it to pop audiences to stay competitive. Artists who didn't play ball were left to rot, while promotional resources were thrown behind whatever new pop country hybrid represented the label's most recent swing for the crossover fences. It's been happening ever since, and it will never, ever stop. Meanwhile, we're still left with the same problem we started with. 
how do you define country music? Like most people, I like to think I know it when I hear it. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say, I like to think I know it when I don't hear it. Tom T. Hall, a man who broke into the music business by working as a real DJ, a man who, to say he had a way with words would be an understatement, when he got around to answering the question, what is country? He didn't say one word about the way it sounds. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Coe. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. Odds are you've got a favorite song by Tom T. Hall, even if you don't know it. And it's a safe bet that it isn't Harper Valley PTA. George Jones called Tom T. Hall truly one of the greatest country songwriters of all time. Tom T. Hall's writing has such a distinct voice that to this day in Nashville, other writers will refer to their own work as a Tom T. Hall type song. There are not very many names we use that way. One word often used to describe Tom's writing is literary. Similar to Bobby Gentry's best work, there's a quality to Tom's narratives reminiscent of the great American short story writers in the 20th century. Sinclair Lewis, Flannery O'Connor, Ernest Hemingway, these are Tom's influences. His nickname is The Storyteller. It fits. Ask him what one of his songs is about, and more often than not, he'll tell you a story. About something he saw, or did, or something he heard someone talking about somewhere. The story that ends up in his song almost always starts with a story outside his song. Naturally, this is something plenty of people attempt to do, but it's possible nobody does it as well as Tom T. Hall. Like the greatest at anything, he even manages to make it look easy. Perhaps even more notable in Nashville than his talent is the fact that Tom T. Hall seems to have always been a genuinely good person. There isn't anyone with many negative things to say about him. Unlike the other two major characters responsible for Harper Valley PTA, he's a Kentucky boy born in 1936, the fifth out of eight Hall children. His poor mother. Eastern Kentucky's never been a place of wealth, and it certainly wasn't in the early 40s. His father worked in brick factories and later became a reverend. One of Tom's earliest memories from around the age of four is of his mom waking him up in the middle of the night to listen to Ernest Tubb on the radio. According to Tom, he's been working on music since 1940. I started playing the guitar when I was four years old, and I'm just as good today as I was then. But seriously, the family moved into a new house when Tom was five or six years old. The previous occupants had left a guitar behind. Nothing special, but with a little work, playable. His father fixed it up, and that was Tom's first guitar. If there was something else Tom was meant to do with his life, nobody ever got the chance to find out. Oh sure, he had odd jobs, and I do mean odd. At the age of 12 or 13, Tom had a summer job mowing grass in a graveyard. A couple years later, he was working in a 100-degree clothing factory, then a funeral home, and later a salesman. Tom had dropped out of school in his early teens, and none of these jobs were a passion. They were just ways to put money in his pocket and have a distraction to keep him from getting in the way of whatever song was currently being written in his head. 
He says his first song came at the age of nine after hearing an argument between the young married couple next door. The husband asked the wife, haven't I been good to you? That sounded like a country song to Tom, so he made one up. His first band came within a few years of that. The Kentucky Travelers were just a group of kids who liked bluegrass enough to want to play some, but they managed to get an audition at a local radio station. It's funny how similar podcasts are to old school radio in a lot of ways. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, then you've heard at least one where the host reads advertisements themselves instead of just playing a commercial from their sponsor. Hell, this might be one of those podcasts by the time you hear this. I don't know. Well, that's how radio used to work back in the day. And if the radio segment you were listening to was hosted by a band, then they may even just write a song for their sponsor and perform that. Probably the most famous example of this is Pat Twitty's jingle for Martha White, Self-Rising Flower, performed about a bajillion times on the radio by Flat and Scruggs. Always use Martha White, Self-Rising Flower, with hot rice. Goodness gracious, it's good. Now you big man, business kick. Oh, Martha White, Self-Rising Flower, the one all-purpose flower. Martha White, Self-Rising Flower, got hot rice. Fun fact, the guy talking at the beginning of that clip was T. Tommy Cutterer, the guy who did that song, The School Bus, in the Shelby Singleton episode of this Harper Valley PTA series. So when the Kentucky Travelers got their radio job, it was with a station sponsored by Polar Bear Flower. I couldn't find it, but Little Tom assumed he was supposed to write them a jingle, so he did, and they just loved it. That's the secret to a long career in radio, people. Keep the sponsors happy. The Kentucky Travelers held that gig until the Korean War broke out and took some of the older boys away from the group. The radio station kept Tom on, which is how he got that first job as a DJ. This was in 1950, making him 14 years old. That's very young to be a DJ, but he must have been good. They kept him on the air until he left for the army himself in 57 or 58. Before leaving, he pulled a funny little publicity stunt in the name of charity. There was a March of Dimes fundraiser, and Tom had the bright idea to get locked up in the local jail until they raised $500. Well, maybe the town took the name of the charity too literally, because the average donation came in the form of coins, and Tom had to broadcast from jail for a full week before raising that $500. Hey everybody, it's Tyler with an announcement that season two of this podcast has been adapted into a book from Simon & Schuster. Yes, that Simon & Schuster. The book comes out the first week of September, but you can pre-order it now, anywhere that carries new books. Alternately, now would be a great time for those of you with a library card to request your local branch order a copy for you to check out when the book is released. I'm also thrilled to announce the book features dozens of original illustrations from Wayne White that add an entirely new dimension to the story. If you would like to see that artwork and learn more about the book, go to cocaineandrhinestones.com and select Book from the main menu for a page with several links to explore. Thank you for listening. According to Tom, he joined the army while bored on his lunch break one day. He just happened to wander into a recruiting center. According to his boss at the station, Tom went on a bender for three days, came into work drunk, 
and got fired. Tom says his old boss made that up after he told him he quit because the boss needed an explanation for why Tom was so suddenly gone. Either way, Tom did four years in the army, mostly stationed in Germany. He used the time wisely to finish a high school level education and even pick up some college credits. They put him on the armed forces radio network over there so his broadcasting skills stayed fresh and he had a band going too. When he got some leave, he'd hop over to another country for a while, see a little bit more of the world. Spring of 1961, back in the US, Tom tries to get a band going with one of the original Kentucky Travelers, but it doesn't really work out. He ends up back on the radio mic, moving from station to station, wherever the pay is better. Mostly, that means West Virginia. It's probably worth noting that most of these gigs require Tom to write his own copy for the commercials he reads on air. These are not songs, just tiny little scripts to read. Again, like you hear in a lot of podcasts these days. But being forced to churn out disposable content like that can really make a writer out of someone. If it seems funny that writing commercials could make you a better songwriter, well, try thinking about songs as little commercials for life. So he's in West Virginia. It's the radio job in the day, nights back in the room where he lives above a library, to fill his head with writers like William Faulkner, Sinclair Lewis, Ernest Hemingway, Mark Twain, until he gets tired and goes to bed. Get back up the next day and do it all over again. Every day except Sunday. On Sunday, Tom goes over to the Moose Lodge to play poker and get drunk. And like every other artist we'll talk about who worked on the radio, here and there Tom books live appearances and promotes them on air. Hanging out with everyone after a show one night, playing songs for each other, a guy from a publishing company in Nashville hears some Tom T. Hall songs and takes them back to his bosses to see what they think. His bosses are Jimmy Key, Jimmy C. Newman, and Dave Dudley at New Keys Music. In October of 1963, Jimmy C. Newman's new single comes out on DECA. The writer on the label is listed as Tom Hall. I'd play a cheating heart And just a girl I used to know I'd play the saddest song You ever heard on your radio I'd If I could be a DJ for a day. You can already see how Tom draws from his own life experiences right from the beginning. When DJ for a day goes top 10 for Jimmy C. Newman, New Keys Music tries to talk their new hit writer into moving to Nashville. Tom knows for certain that he wants to be a writer, but he's not so sure about this songwriter business. He goes to Salem, Virginia instead. There's another radio job there, one that doesn't require him to write ad copy or do anything else besides be a DJ, leaving time for him to take college courses in formal writing as applied to fiction and journalism. Of course, he kept sending songs to Nashville, they kept getting cut, and the thing about this songwriter business is when those checks start showing up for doing nothing but writing down some words to a melody, it gets a lot harder to walk away. Even after making the decision to move to Nashville and really be a songwriter, Tom wants the date to be auspicious. 
So he waits until New Year's Eve to leave, arriving on January 1st, 1964. Other sources have this move taking place after Dave Dudley's recording of Mad became another early top 10 hit for Tom. Mad. Yeah, she's mad. It's back to the doghouse and old from the practice of had. Oh, and she's mad. I play a dangerous game. In the obituary column, they've already printed my name. Side note, that single was on Mercury Records, co-produced by Shelby Singleton and Jerry Kennedy. It didn't come out until August of 64, though there's no reason it would really be important what month in 1964 Tom T. Hall moved to Nashville. What matters is there isn't a radio job waiting for him this time. New Key's music pays him $50 a week so he can survive long enough to write some songs and bring in enough royalties to pay back all those $50 a week loans. This is called being on a draw. His royalty checks do keep getting bigger, but a songwriter life in Nashville is way more expensive than a bookworm life in Salem, Virginia. This is when Tom becomes a song plugger. We haven't talked about this yet either, so here's what a song plugger used to be. The entire record industry was built on songs, obviously. But there's no telling how many dozens of songwriters showed up to Nashville every single day with dreams of getting their songs recorded. Record labels, producers, artists who'd already made it, these people could literally open the front door of any bar downtown and yell, anybody got any songs to record? and probably cause a bar fight from every writer rushing to get there first. Some of those writers may even have been good. Most of them would not have been. What you need is a bit of quality control. You need someone who's already listened to all the new songs in town and pulled out the good ones to show you when you come calling. Like how the bartender at your regular spot knows your drink and starts making it as soon as you walk in. That's a publishing company, and the actual person you'd be talking to is a song plugger. You could go to their office if you want. More often than not, the song plugger would come to you. At the record company's office, the artist's home or hotel room, even straight to the recording studio in cases of emergency. Always with a box full of tapes and lyric sheets. In his book, The Storyteller's Nashville, Tom tells a story about a difficult song plugging session for Rex Allen. By the time Tom arrives, there are empty bottles and reels of tape all over the hotel room. This one's been going on for a while. Rex isn't hearing anything he likes, or maybe more accurately, isn't seeing any names of songwriters he recognizes on the lyric sheets. He keeps saying he wants a hit. He keeps asking, where's the stuff from the hit songwriters? Tom waits with the other pluggers, watching Rex lay on his bed in a bathrobe, listening to him complain. Then it's Tom's turn. He hands Rex the lyric sheet of each new song, hits play on the tape, repeating the process every time Rex interrupts the song to say, next. Four songs into this, Rex starts in on another long tirade about needing a hit. So Tom just packs up his stuff and leaves. This was probably pretty typical of a hotel room song plugging session. Thankfully, Tom didn't have to be a song plugger for very long. I would never accuse him of pushing his own songs to the top of the pile in those sessions, 
but he did keep getting his stuff recorded by his bosses, Dave Dudley and Jimmy C. Newman, as well as artists like Flat and Scruggs, Billy Grammer, Nancy Sinatra with Lee Hazelwood, Gene Shepard, and Johnny Wright. Johnny took Tom's song, Hello Vietnam, to number one in 1965. If you're trying to place it, you may have heard that one a couple decades later at the beginning of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Two things happened around the time Hello Vietnam went number one. Tom had a song on the B-side of the Statler Brothers monster hit Flowers on the Wall. That B-side was called Billy Christian and nobody talks about it much anymore, but Flowers on the Wall was a top five hit on the pop charts and everyone who bought the front side of the record bought the back of it too. Those B-side royalty checks cashed just as good as the A-side checks. The other thing that happened in 1965 is Tom began working on a song that would become Harper Valley PTA when he finished it in 1967. Probably sometime in 1966, Jimmy Key started trying to convince Tom he should record an album of his own songs. Just like Jimmy had a hard time getting him to move to Nashville, he had a hard time getting him to record an album. It took about a year and Jerry Kennedy finally getting in his other ear about it for Tom to get on board with the idea. Jerry told him that while amazing, his songs were often too personal to Tom's own life experiences for other artists to want to record them. In July of 1967, the first Tom T. Hall single came out on Mercury Records. They added that T to give his name a little more character. And hey, maybe it worked. Because I washed my face in the morning dew went to number 30. The first strange town I was ever in The county was hanging a man Nobody cared if he lived or died And I just didn't understand so I washed my face in the morning dew, bathed my soul in the sun, washed my face in the morning dew, and kept on moving along. The standard line on Tom T. Hall as a singer is that he sure is a good songwriter. He's no George Jones, but he's certainly no worse of a singer than, say, Johnny Cash. Some might say every Tom T. Hall record sounds the same because his voice always sounds the same. I would counter that Tom T. Hall writes very memorable melodies and there has never been a time when a song was playing and you weren't sure whether or not it was Tom T. Hall singing. His voice stands out. It's recognizable and by the fifth time you hear it, you probably know the words. If you pick up all the pieces from various versions of how Tom came to write Harper Valley PTA, it comes together something like this. The inspiration for Tom to begin writing the song, like always, is in his own past. Tom writes, quote, When I was a small boy in the town where I grew up, there was a lady who used to have parties on Saturday nights. Obviously, I changed her name in the song. 
She would have people over and they would have drinks and talk and listen to records. It wasn't a crack house or anything wild like that. They were all pretty respectable people and she had a daughter. This is all in the song. That's the memory Tom carried around his whole life and where he started with the song. Skip ahead to 1967. A radio station outside Nashville is hosting a Listener Appreciation Day party. Tom's there and so is Margie Singleton with her new husband, Leon Ashley, as in Ashley Records. Margie's talking to Tom and she tells him he ought to write her a song like Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. On his way home from the party, Tom drives by a sign that reads Harpeth Valley Utility District. He changes Harpeth to Harper and finishes that idea he'd started a couple years back. He makes an acoustic demo for Margie, but she's out on tour. Tom files the song with New Keys music and it gets to Billy Grammer. Grammer takes it home, brings it back, saying his kids don't like it, but he'll record it if he can change it around some. Tom's not into that, and I still wonder if Billy Grammer ever forgave his children. While that was going on, Margie Singleton's husband, Leon Ashley, cut a demo of the song with Alice Joy. This is the demo that sits in Shelby Singleton's desk for months while he waits for a Jeannie C. Riley to come along. By the way, any Tom T. Hall fans checking out this podcast for the first time, I don't do much recapping. You're missing a lot if you skipped the previous two episodes on Harper Valley PTA. According to legend, the Friday night of the Harper Valley PTA recording session, Tom's drinking at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. It's possible he's working. Many years later, he said there was a time when he could write a song and carry on a conversation at the same time. He'd sit, drink a beer, and talk to people in Tootsies while working on a song in his head. Anyway, someone stops by the bar, tells Tom his song is being recorded, and it sounds like a hit. Tom runs down the street to the studio. He's supposed to have gotten there in time to hear the second take. If that's true, he hears a small change to his lyrics. The way he'd written the final line in the song was, that's the day my mama put down the Harper Valley PTA. Shelby Singleton's second wife, Barbara, is in the studio that night. After the first take, she suggests changing the line to, the day my mama socked it to the Harper Valley PTA. Sock it to me was the hip new catchphrase, thanks to laugh in. Jeannie sings the new line and all the things I already told you about happen. Speaking on the immediate popularity of the song, Tom T. Hall once said, it was like finding $100,000 while walking down the street. Since he was the guy who wrote the hit, they hit him up for a few more songs on the Harper Valley PTA full length. None of those songs were hits, but that's a bigger royalty check with every sale of the LP. Tom once met a guy in West Virginia who bought a copy of the album even though he didn't own a record player and had no way to listen to it. That's how you know a song has become bigger than itself. That's hype. In later years, Tom would always maintain that he never felt interested in trying to duplicate Harper Valley PTA. It's quite likely that is true. But if it is true, then I've got another Shelby Singleton story for you. In 1968, D. Mullins, Shelby Singleton's go-to guy for trying to piggyback off a head or a headline, 
releases the single, The Continuing Story of Harper Valley PTA. I'm here to tell you all what happened to the Harper Valley PTA. After Mrs. Johnson came into the meeting, when she got the note that day, the people in this little patent place stood up and they all slowly looked around. As she socked it to the hypocrites in their own little narrow-minded town. Soul writer Tom T. Hall. Or at least that's what you'd believe if you only saw the label of the single that was released to the public. Look up the copyright info on the song, or find a picture of the label for the Radio Promo 7-inch, and you'll see two other writers listed, Clark Bentley and Jerry Clark. Considering the continuing story is written so poorly that it isn't even funny, I suspect those writers were brought in to milk every last cent out of this cash cow. Since Tom would have to be listed anyway for writing the original, it seems they decided to just make it look like he wrote the second one all by himself too. But Tom T. Hall had surely moved on to better things. His first top five single as an artist came out within a month of Harper Valley PTA leaving the number one position on the country charts. You can hear Jerry Kennedy's Dobro on the track too. A man who preached the funeral said it really was a simple way to die. He lay down to rest one afternoon and never opened up his eyes. They hired me and Fred and Joe to dig the grave and carry up some chairs. It took us seven hours, and I guess we must have drunk a case of beer. Ballad of $40 was inspired by that first summer job mowing grass in the graveyard. He talked about it at a Country Music Hall of Fame event. Quote, Of course, when they had a funeral, I had to shut down the mower. That song is about my experiences shutting down the mower and watching the funerals. The irony is, when somebody else dies, I don't know how it got to be this way, but the rest of the world, more or less, forgives their sins. They say, oh, he was a wonderful guy, a good person. Which is one of the ironies of philosophy, I think. End quote. That became the title track of Tom's first album, released in 1969, which opens with his own excellent recording of the song Bobby Bear would hit with in 1970, that's how I got to Memphis. If you love somebody enough, you'll follow wherever they go. That's how I got to Memphis. That's how I got to Memphis. If you love somebody enough, You'll go where your heart wants to go That's how I got to Memphis That's how I got to Memphis With plenty of supply to meet the new level of demand, Tom actually put out two albums in 1969, both produced by Jerry Kennedy, who once said, I used to get all fired up when Tom would call and say, Hey, I got a batch of new songs I'd like to play for you. It was like opening things at Christmas. 
I knew out of that batch there were going to be some killers. There always were. It was just like watching a movie when I'd hear these things. You could actually see the story unfolding. Those killers are packed into this second album, Homecoming. There's Margie's at the Lincoln Park Inn, which had already been a hit for Bobby Bear. Then Tom's first number one with his own song, A Week in a Country Jail. That one isn't about the week Tom spent in jail for charity. Just like it says in the song, it's about a different time when he was arrested for speeding. Only, he had the bad luck to be arrested just as the judge had to leave town for a funeral. So it took close to a week for him to be released. Now we've been talking about some major songs in this episode already, and it's easy to lose perspective on how big a deal each of these achievements is on its own. Put it this way, three singles from Tom T. Hall's second album were top tens. A Week in a Country Jail, Shoeshine Man, and the miniature master class in breaking every rule of writing a hit song, Homecoming. I guess I should have written that to let you know that I was coming home. I've been gone so many years, I didn't realize you had a phone. I saw your cattle coming in, boy, they're looking mighty fat and slick. I saw Fred at the service station told me that his wife was awful sick. There's no chorus. The word homecoming isn't even in the song. Oh well, it's just another song. But I've got a hit recorded and it'll be out on the market for too long. I'd play the whole thing if I could. And we could spend hours just listening to and talking about Tom T. Hall's songs. But let's talk about his life for a second. If fame and fortune ever really does change people, it doesn't seem to have changed Tom at all, besides giving his eccentric tendencies a little more room to breathe. Before he was rich, Tom started his days with coffee and writing, believing the best stuff came when he was fresh from sleeping. After he got rich, Tom started his days with coffee and writing. The only thing that changed is where he was doing the writing. In 1969, Tom put a dent in his bank account by purchasing Fox Hollow, 60 acres of farmland half an hour outside of Nashville, where he moved with his wife, Dixie. Long white fences, big plantation-style home, a lake on the property. The whole thing was like a dream come true. Dixie Hall was a songwriter herself, and she'll definitely pop up in some other episodes. She lived with Mother Maybelle Carter for a while in the early 60s. You know, when Johnny Cash was trying his damnedest to marry into the first family of country music? But those are different stories. Tom and Dixie met at the BMI Awards one year because they were writers of opposite sides on a hit Dave Dudley record from 1965. Dixie and Ray King wrote the A-side, Truck Driving Son of a Gun. Flying low, making up his time But from where I sit, I don't believe you'd say I'm wasting mine I'm moving faster than a Jimmy 8 If you think I'm losing time, you're running late And Tom wrote the B-side, I Got Lost Well, my eyes are open and my mind's awake But from my neck on down, I'm asleep 
I've been on this road for so doggone long, but might I have to cut me out of this seat. Well, my foots are getting heavy and my head's getting light and my back it's beginning to hurt. If I don't get the wheeling to a stop pretty soon, I'll be taking buttons off of my shirt. I got lost, or I could have made it right on time. I got lost. The arms of a baby of mine. Seated at the same table for the dinner part of the evening, Tom asked Dixie if she liked potatoes. When she said she did, he followed up with, Is that how you got fat? Since she was clearly a slim woman, this was plainly meant as a joke. And Dixie either thought it was funny or felt sorry for the idiot because they eventually got married in March of 1968, just before Harper Valley PTA took over the world. The relationship seems to have organized itself pretty quickly. Dixie, the grown-up, handling business and finances. Tom, same old Tom. Mild-mannered, but up for a good time. Responsible, until an opportunity to have a good story presents itself. Like the one from the late 60s that George Jones tells in his autobiography. It's one of Tom's early road gigs in Texas. George Jones, Willie Nelson, and Wynn Stewart with Tom making $750 to open the show. Well, out of that $750, Tom had to pay for the tour bus they rented and pay for his band's food and hotel rooms. So he was barely making any money on the deal at all, especially after losing at poker to George and Wynn. Tom had to go wake up his manager in the middle of the night to settle with the guys. And I'm sure he'd do it again the exact same way, just to have the story of losing at poker to George Jones and Wynn Stewart. And anyway, I guess George figured it was even after he cut some of Tom's songs later on down the road. I know I should have left But I passed up every date that I ever sent But I know I'll leave when my heart tells me it's ready But I'm still around cause I'm ready Tom's brand of drunken mischief never seems to take the dark, depressing turn we almost always have to take when talking about country musicians who drink. Quite the opposite. One time Hank Cochran got drunk and passed out at a Fox Hollow party. Tom eventually got tired himself, but he didn't want to go to bed because he was worried that Hank would wake up and try to drive himself home while still drunk. So the solution Tom found was to roll Hank up in the rug he'd passed out on, presumably with Hank's head sticking out so he could breathe, and then lay the rolled up rug on top of a pool table so Hank wouldn't be able to get out even if he did wake up before everyone else. Of the three main actors who created Harper Valley PTA, there's no question that Tom T. Hall came out the other side in the best shape. He got the money and didn't blow it. He respected the person he married and got to share most of his life with a loving partner. He gained the respect of industry peers and audiences, which he's maintained for over 40 years. It would have been so easy for him to start phoning it in at any point past the 60s, yet the quality of his work never diminished. If you were ever a Tom T. Hall fan, it's safe to say you'll always be one. 
because all he's ever done is be great at being Tom T. Hall. Bob Dylan has taken a shot or two at Tom, but you can choose what you think is the worst Tom T. Hall album, and I'll choose what I think is the worst Bob Dylan album, and we can sit down and compare those any day you want to do that. In the 1970s, as an artist, Tom put 16 of his own songs in the top 10. Six of those went to number one. Here's another way to look at it. Of the 30 Tom T. Hall singles released from 1970 to 1979, only four failed to hit the country top 20, and all four of those were in the top 40. He literally released nothing as an artist but hit singles for a decade. Not bad for a songwriter. And of course, that's not even mentioning the many hits other artists had with these songs. But let's stay focused on Tom. His first number one of the 70s, the year Clayton Delaney died. Clayton Delaney was, well, you don't even need me to tell you. Clayton was the best guitar picker in our town. I thought he was a hero and I used to follow Clayton around. I often wondered why Clayton, who seemed so good to me, Never took his guitar and made it down in Tennessee. Of course, I'm sure there's a little extra in the song to make it interesting. Clayton Delaney was just a name that Tom made up for a real musician in his hometown named Lonnie Easterly. When Tom says his songs are based on true stories, he's not always talking about only his life. These aren't audio documentaries. He starts with something that happened to him, but by the time it's done, there's usually more there than even he may realize. Like with Old Dog's Children and Watermelon Wine, his next number one hit in 1972. Reading the lyrics of the song, it seems like straight autobiography, and it's quite possible Tom even believed that's what he was doing when he wrote the words down. There's something hidden in there though, and according to Tom, it even took him two years to see it himself. How old do you think I am, he said. I said, well, I didn't know. He said, I turned 65 about 11 months ago. I was sitting in Miami whiskey down when this old gray black gentleman was cleaning up the lounge there wasn't anyone around except this old man and me the guy who ran the bar was watching Ironsides on TV Uninvited He sat down And opened up his mind On old dogs and children And watermelon wine The thing may be worth knowing about this conversation is that it happened the night Tom played a concert with George Jones and Tammy Wynette across the street from the 1972 Democratic National Convention in Miami. Being the guy who wrote Harper Valley PTA, you may expect Tom T. Hall to be pretty outspoken in his politics, or at least out there pointing fingers in his songs. 
He did a little bit of that, but not very much. There's a killer song from 1970 on his fourth album, Eyewitness Life. The song is called America the Ugly, but it's not nearly as inflammatory as you would expect from that title. There was a man came to see the USA from a foreign land to photograph the progress of dear old Uncle Sam. He got off the boat and New York went down to the Bowery. I know what the man went to photograph and to see. The song talks about homeless drunks, hungry children, able-bodied men unable to find a job, all of that, ending on a call for us to figure it out with the line, if we get heads and hearts together, we won't have to hear them say, America the Ugly, today. It's vague enough that both liberals and conservatives, and everyone in between, could think it's written by one of them. Add that to The Man Who Hated Freckles or I Want to See the Parade, both about the ignorance of racism, and that's about as political as Tom ever got on his albums, though he did later consider running for governor, presumably as a Democrat. So after the infamous 1968 DNC in Chicago turned into a bloody riot, there were some concerns about the 1972 DNC. The political arena hadn't calmed down much, and people like Hunter S. Thompson were worried they could be in for a, quote, week-long orgy of sex, violence, and treachery, end quote, at the 1972 DNC in Miami. Activist Jerry Rubin went on television to promise 10,000 naked hippies would descend on the convention for nonviolent protests. Somewhere in there, someone thought it would be a good idea to have some country music happening in Flamingo Park across the street. Back to Tom. Quote, this was just across the street from the convention center, so these young people became more interested in the music than in the politics. They all came over and brought a case of beer and fired up a joint and sat around in the grass and we played music for them. They left the convention alone. After that show, Tom went into the hotel bar for a whiskey or two before bed. He told me all about it Though I didn't answer back Ain't but three things in this world that's worth the solitary dime but old dogs and children and watermelon wine tom in a later interview the classic bartender was standing wiping a glass and I don't know why they do that, but he had this one glass and he was wearing it out, wiping it and watching Ironside on TV. I figured out later that the old man in the song was retired. He said, I turned 65, by the way, a few months ago. What he was telling me was he didn't need this job. He was on social security. You know, I'd written this song and it took me two years to figure out what that line was about. And watermelon wine. In other words, there's a fourth thing in this world worth a solitary dime, and that's finding a way to make yourself useful. But you don't need to know the specific age of retirement to pick that up from old dog's children and watermelon wine. Part of what makes Tom T. Hall one of our best songwriters 
is that he knew there was something worth keeping in that line, even if he didn't know what it was until later on down the road. There was a 10 a.m. session booked in Nashville the following morning, so he had to get up early to catch a plane. Tom wrote Old Dog's Children and Watermelon Wine on a vomit bag during the flight. His producer, Jerry Kennedy, who was waiting on him at the studio, said, His plane was late getting there, and he walked in with that song written. He didn't even have a melody finished for it. All of that was finished right on the date, and to me, that's one of the best songs he's ever written. 1973 and 1974 are the best years for Tom T. Hall as an artist if you're going by radio and record sales. He had a four-single run of hits, three number ones and a number two, starting with I Love in 1973. This is the particular song Bob Dylan was talking about when he criticized Tom T. Hall in his Music Cares Person of the Year acceptance speech calling it the Little Baby Duck song. I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, slow-moving trains and rain. I love little country streams, sleep without dreams, Sunday school in May and hay. And I love you too. It is a simple song. It's also his biggest hit as a singer. This thing crossed over to the pop charts and went to number 12. Whether or not you love it, a lot of people did. Tom may have been giving a nod to critics of I Love with his next single, a hit song about hit songs. That song is driving me crazy. That song is driving me crazy. I gotta hear it again. The first time I heard it, I was with some friends. It's a simple little song you can sing along with an old-time melody. So would you play that crazy little song again for me? Then it's back to that list format for Country Is and I Care. Many songwriters go through a phase of writing list songs. Bob Dylan did too, in case he's forgotten Gotta Serve Somebody or Man Gave Names to All the Animals. A list song is exactly what it sounds like. Pick a theme, make a list, sing the list. I Love was a list of things Tom loves. Country Is was a list of, you guessed it, what country is. And country is having a good time. Listen to the music singing your part. Country is walking in the moonlight. Country It came out at a time when everyone was in the middle of yet another debate over what was and wasn't country music, who should and shouldn't be considered a country artist. 
Then you've got I Care, the only single released from Tom's album for children, Songs of Fox Hollow. It's a list of circumstances when Tom T. Hall wants you to remember that he cares about you. When they take you someplace and you sit in a chair, I want you to know I care. When you tell a big lie and your parents are mean, when being grown up is a faraway dream, when they're filling your teeth and cutting your hair, I want you to know I care, I care, I do. There's no one like you. I mention your name when I'm saying my prayers. I want you to know I care. So yeah, these list songs may be seen as a departure from the storyteller's trademark style, but these were some of his biggest hits. People responded to them. These simple words express complex feelings, and you could say that about the entire genre of country music. Those of us capable of expressing these feelings ourselves may not resonate with it, but not everyone who cares about another person has such an easy time communicating that. Some of us have a roadblock between the feeling and the words. Having I Care by Tom T. Hall on a record we can give to another person, that means something. Anyway, some people say Tom wasn't cut out to be as famous as his list songs made him. In 1973, at the very first Willie Nelson 4th of July picnic in Dripping Springs, Texas, Tom broke a string on his acoustic guitar. Not a big deal, except instead of handing it off to a stagehand to change the string, Tom threw the guitar into the audience, which started one of several fistfights that day. It could have seemed like a funny thing to do at the time, you know. Only this isn't an isolated incident. At this time, he had an endorsement from Ovation Guitars, and they actually had to have a talk with Tom because they didn't see how it was possible for him to go through two guitars a week. Apparently, anytime something would go wrong in his show, he'd smash his guitar on stage and throw it out to the crowd. Of all the people famous for smashing their instruments on stage, Tom T. Hall must be the least likely of the bunch. Although it could be naive to believe anger was the motivating factor here. Go back and listen to the Leuven Brothers episode. Ask yourself if Ira Leuven would have stopped smashing his mandolins should some company giving them to him for free ask him to stop. Of course not. Ira smashed his instrument because he couldn't control his rage. Tom did it for show. This is a man who rarely seems to lose sight of the perspective that he's living his own personal dream. When he really was displeased with something, his typical reaction was to simply walk away. He joined the Grand Ole Opry in 1971, while it was still at the Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville where it had been since 1943. In 1974, the program moved out to the new Opry House, where it is now at the Opry Mills Mall, but what was then a country music-themed amusement park called Opryland USA, like a Six Flags type of thing. Tom resigned from the Grand Ole Opry. Six months later, he gave a reporter the explanation that the new venue just didn't have the same thing going for it as the Ryman. 
Quote, as soon as we moved to the new place, I immediately and instinctively did not like it. The Ryman was different. It was almost an ego trip, really, standing on the same stage where Hank Williams once performed and knowing there were people out there who appreciated what you were doing, who had driven, in some cases, a couple hundred miles to see it. But the audiences now don't know what they're looking at. The old-time acts are being put down and dismissed. They're playing to people who don't know what they are seeing, who stop in at Opryland on their way to Florida and take in a performance of the Opry and think, what the hell is this guy doing? Without getting all the way into it right now, Tom T. Hall was definitely not the only country artist who had this opinion, but that may not have been his only reason for quitting the Opry. In the six months between his disappearance from the Grand Ole Opry lineup and his giving an explanation to the public, the press had themselves a grand old time stoking a fire under the rumor that Tom had quit due to uptight rules not allowing him to use band instruments on stage, namely a horn section. Now, it's a fact that horns were not allowed on the Opry stage, and his most recent hit, That Song Is Driving Me Crazy, featured a full Dixieland jazz band arrangement with heavy use of horns. Tom, from then until now, has consistently downplayed this as a reason he left. His resignation was communicated through a private and respectful letter with Opry personnel. Tom didn't smash anything or rush to the media in a fit of anger. This just happened to be a time when Tom was at the height of his popularity, and only six months after the Opry faced a different controversy over Skeeter Davis. Around Christmas of 1973, she saw some, quote, Jesus people being arrested on her way into the Ryman. She went on stage, made a statement about how much it burdens her heart to see police arresting people just for saying, Jesus loves you, and then she sang Amazing Grace. Religion is welcome on the Opry stage. Criticizing police is not. Skeeter was suspended from the Opry that night. This sort of thing sells a lot of newspapers. Following that, anything that looked like a scandal at the Opry, the media wasn't going to let go. They kept calling all Tom's people, trying to get an explanation for his absence, until finally his booking agent's son yelled something about them not letting Tom have his horn players and slammed the phone down. Many people to this day believe that's the only reason Tom quit the Opry. Not that it would make him irrational or hot-headed. Others have quit the Opry for less. But according to Tom, it's just not the truth. In 1975, those horns were back in Tom T. Hall's final number one as an artist, Faster Horses. It goes back to that old dog's children and watermelon wine template. Tom puts a version of himself into a conversation with an old cowboy version of, well, actually, it's another version of himself. He was an old-time cowboy, don't you understand? His eyes were sharp as razor blades, his face was leather tan. His toes were pointed inward from a hanging on a horse. He was an old philosopher, of course. He was so thin, I swear you could have used him for a whip. He had to drink a beer to keep his bridges on his hips. I knew I had to ask him about the mysteries of life. He spit between his boots and he replied, It's faster horses, younger women, older whiskey, more money. 
Tom was walking around in New York City with a country boyfriend of his. The friend made a comment about it being a tough place. Tom replied, yeah, New York City is all about faster horses, younger women, older whiskey, and more money. Of course, that wouldn't have been as good as it coming from an old cowboy, so that's whose mouth Tom put the words in for another hit. He kept hitting the top 10 into the 80s, so it's not like this is his swan song or anything, but if we're sticking to the number ones, which is probably the exact wrong way to go about listening to Tom T. Hall, the trail ends here. Those of you who have enjoyed the clips you've heard should absolutely go buy this man's albums. As always, there will be links to everything on cocaineandrhinestones.com. Start at the beginning and work your way forward. Take your time with each one. There's so much more here than the greatest hits, and I'm even having to skip over some of those just to keep this episode at a reasonable length. Unlike nearly every artist I'll talk about on this podcast, I really don't believe there's a bad phase of Tom's career. For instance, after Faster Horses, Tom got back in touch with his bluegrass roots on an album of covers and originals called The Magnificent Music Machine. It really is magnificent. She walks through the corn leading down to the river Her hair shone like gold in the hot morning sun She took all the love that poor boy could give her And left me to die like a fox on the run in the late 70s, Tom was offered a hosting job on Pop Goes the Country, a 30-minute country music variety show on TV. Despite telling interviewer Alana Nash that he didn't want to take the job, in 1980, he took the job, replacing Ralph Emery and staying with the show for three years. In 1982, Jim Varney, aka Ernest, was given his first real job doing characters, and the title of the show was changed to... It's Tom T's Pop Goes the Country Club! The show was syndicated, the implications of which I'll talk more about in a couple of weeks with Buck Owens and Don Rich, but for right now, let's just say it means a lot of people were watching. Starring Tom T. Hall with Jim Varney, with special guest stars Jeannie C. Riley and Mountain Smoke. Everyone who tuned in usually saw Tom open the show with a song, and from there, it stuck to the typical comedy-slash-country TV show format, only with much more screen time dedicated to musical performances than to anything else. You can still find some pretty great clips on YouTube. You can also find one of the commercials Tom did for Tyson Chicken. Tom T. Hall, what are you doing? Working on a number one hit. Oh, a new song. No, a Tyson Chicken Quick breast patty. Tyson Chicken Quick? A number one hit? Yep. More people pick them than any other patty. They're 100% breast of chicken. 100%? 100%. Most other brands aren't. And the patties are part of a whole family. Hoagies, fillets, Oh, fish. then it's a family album. That's it. Tyson's greatest hit. In 1982, still sticking with that banjo sound, Tom T. Hall and Earl Scruggs recorded Bob McDill's Song of the South. Cotton on the roadside, cotton in the ditch. We all picked the cotton, but we never got rich. Daddy was a veteran, a Southern Democrat said they ought to kill a rich man to vote like that. Sing a song, song of the South. We eat potato pie and shut my mouth. Gone, gone with the wind. Ain't no 
Bobby Bear and Johnny Russell also had early versions of what would become one of Alabama's greatest hits later in the decade. Tom had published his first book in the mid-70s called How I Write Songs, Why You Can, which was later reprinted as The Songwriter's Handbook. I haven't read that one, but judging by the cover, which you should always do, a summary for all you songwriters may be contained in this quote. In order to write songs, you have to be able to recognize what a song is. You have to recognize the importance of something that is entertaining, and you have to say what you want to say very briefly. In 2016, Tom told Peter Cooper that songwriters aren't good songwriters. People are good songwriters. You sit down as a person and write a song. If you've written a song, by the time you stand back up, you're a songwriter. But the person comes first. In 1986, Tom essentially retired from being an entertainer, perhaps due to embarrassment from becoming a songwriter for two hours in 1984 to make Return to Harper Valley at Jeannie C. Riley's request. Just kidding, but that story is in the previous episode if you want it. There was another album of children's songs in 1988, but no tour to support it. You'd see him on TV or in the paper every now and then, appearing on a special, presenting or receiving an award. He spent most of his time writing and releasing fiction, which is obviously very good, writing book reviews for our local paper, The Nashville Tennessean, and simply enjoying life at home with family on Fox Hollow. In 1996, Tom released a little bit of silence and a little bit of sound. It's all right to be little bitty in a little hometown or a big old city. Might as well share, might as well smile. Life goes on for a little bitty while. It was a ridiculously big hit for Alan Jackson that same year. Alan did something a little bitty different with the production. a little love on a little honeymoon you got a little dish and you got a little spoon a little bitty house and a little bitty yard a little bitty dog and a little bitty car but it's all right to be little bitty lyrically little bitty was totally unlike anything else on the radio at the time people still bought cds in the mid 90s and if they liked the song a lot they even looked at the liner notes to see who wrote it Alan Jackson's cover led to many younger people learning about Tom T. Hall for the first time. Tom wasn't even really trying for a comeback, still writing great songs, but also still not touring. In fact, we're told he tried to completely retire from music, but his wife, Miss Dixie, wasn't having any of that. Hardcore bluegrass fans listening to this are probably annoyed that I've gone this long without mentioning just how important Dixie Hall has been to the genre. To keep Tom from leaving music for good, Dixie had to start writing songs again with him. When she passed away in 2015, she left over 500 songs in her catalog. Like I said before, you'll be hearing her name in future episodes. It's possible the final Tom T. Hall album was released in 2007. Though I have every confidence that at over 80 years of age, he could put out a fine collection of original material if he wanted. If Tom T. Hall sings Miss Dixie and Tom T. is the last album he releases, it's one hell of a note to go out on. Watch a brown road, 
We were young and we were fair Changed the face of all America But never hung around in the barber chair We were fighting for a dream Fought a mighty big machine And there ain't nothing that we know Once upon a roof We have little left to show For being once upon a roof Thank you for listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. This and every other episode of the podcast is written and produced by me, Tyler Mahan Co. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at that name if you'd like. Every episode of the podcast has a blog post at cocaineandrhinestones.com where you can find a full list of songs featured in the episode, links to buy the music, information on my sources, and links to buy the books I read, plus pictures and video clips related to the things I told you about. Uh, I have a head cold right now, by the way, so if my voice sounds stupid, that's why. If you have any questions about the podcast or anything else in life, the final episode of this first season will be a Q&A session that you can take part in by sending an email to questions at cocaineandrhinestones.com. Please share this episode of the podcast with one person. Anyone interested in songwriting on any level should be interested, I would think. There's also that 10-minute crash course on the sounds of country music in the intro. I know a lot of people never get into country music because it seems like such a giant, daunting history. There's so much there, and there are so many strong opinions about what is and isn't supposed to be good or real or whatever, and there are a lot of people who decide it's not even worth messing with. I could see the intro of this episode knocking down some of those walls for some people new to the genre, I hope. This episode of the podcast is supported by Goodbye Girls. That's G-O-O-D-B-U-Y, girls. Because if you're looking for a goodbye in Nashville, well, Southern Living Magazine named Goodbye Girls one of the 10 best places in the South to buy boots. Shop in true Nashville style on racks that have dressed Margot Price, Elizabeth Cook, Shovels and Rope, Lady Gaga, and many more rad individuals, artists, and musicians. Goodbye Girls offers a mix of what Nasty Gal calls Western cult, vintage, and new. Check out the website at www.goodbyegirlsnashville.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And make sure to swing by the next time you're in Nashville, because if you tell them Cocaine and Rhinestones sent you, they'll give you 10% off your purchase. Next week on the podcast, it's the first of two episodes on Buck Owens and Don Rich. It's taking me two episodes to tell the story, so you can imagine there's a lot there. It's got a little bit of everything for everyone, 
The story has significant connections to at least four previous episodes of this podcast and sets up some other stuff for future episodes still left in the first season, so I think it's going to be a big one. Okay, here are the liner notes for Tom T. Hall, and I have to clear something up at the end, so I'm going to try to make this fast. Everyone always makes such a big deal out of how great a songwriter Tom T. Hall is that I thought it would be interesting to make a point of emphasizing how successful he was as an artist while still getting the songwriter stuff in there. There's another butterfly effect tangent on Shelby Singleton here if you wanted. Take Shelby out of the music business, and it's even more likely that Harper Valley PTA never would have happened in any timeline because Shelby's ex-wife Margie had to move to Nashville with Shelby, get divorced, and be at that radio party with her new husband to ask Tom to write her a specific type of song, which had him thinking about that specific type of song when he drove by that sign that had the word Harpeth on it, etc., etc. It's crazy. I do like to think that Rex Allen later saw a picture of Tom T. Hall and recognized him as the guy who left that hotel room when Rex wouldn't stop complaining about not being shown any material from a hit songwriter. Probably not, but it's funny to think about. I've been informed that T. Tommy Cutterer's last name is actually pronounced Cutrer or Coutrer. This has been a thing my entire life, and it's going to keep happening on this podcast with other words and other names. Please don't take it to mean I don't care or haven't done the research. It's merely a side effect of learning by reading and never having heard something said out loud. Tom T's Pop Goes the Country Club was filmed at Opryland USA, so he apparently thought it was just the Grand Ole Opry that shouldn't be made out there. And Tom didn't only do commercials for Tyson Chicken. You can find a ton of Tom T. Hall commercials on YouTube. I've even seen him joke about how many product endorsements he did. There were a lot of online interviews used for this one. There'll be links to all those and to all of the following books on cocaineandrhinestones.com. Also, I failed to mention this in the liner notes for the previous two Harper Valley PTA episodes, but obviously the books I read for any individual episode of this little series should be considered a source for every episode in the series, even if that information isn't explicitly used in that episode. I read all of these things for all three of these episodes. All the things I read informed my understanding of the events for each episode. For this one, there's, of course, the Tom T. Hall book, The Storyteller's Nashville. Naturally, anyone who enjoyed this episode should own and enjoy that book. Tom has a piece on writing Harper Valley PTA in one of those chicken soup for the soul books called Country Music, the inspirational stories behind 101 of your favorite country songs. There's a book called Watermelon Wine, Remembering the Golden Years of Country Music. That's by Fry Gaylord, I think is how it's said. It's not about Tom T, but he is talked about a lot in there, as you would expect the title being one of his songs and everything. It's a good read to place his work into context of other things that were happening around him. Uh, I'd recommend it. The Hank Cochran wrapped up in a rug on a pool table story came from a book called Tales from Country Music by Jerry Wood. It's not a wonderfully written book, but if you like stories like that, then you'll probably like it. 
George Jones' autobiography is called I Lived to Tell It All. There's a lot that doesn't get talked about in there, and a lot that does. It's worth reading for sure. Like I said, that's where I got the story of Tom playing poker with George and Wynn Stewart. By the way, kids, probably don't play poker with someone if their first name is Wynn. You know, just an idea. I was not making a wild inference when I said that Tom didn't smash his guitars out of anger. He says as much in that interview with Alana Nash in her book, Behind Closed Doors. I told you where the other clips came from, but that first clip of Tom telling the joke about how he started playing guitar at the age of four, that came from an interview he did with a radio show called The Five Count out of Minnesota. You can hear the whole interview at thefivecount.com or you can probably search like Tom T. Hall Five Count to find it. All right, those are my sources and everything else will be on the website. Now, I need to clarify something about this show and maybe about myself that based on some emails I've received is being misunderstood. When I make an episode of this podcast, my ultimate goal is to put you in the time and place of the main artist I'm talking about. Whether that's by showing you things from that artist's perspective or the perspective of their fans and critics who want something different than what that artist is giving them, the perspective of historical context by examining world events, or the perspective of the conversation around mainstream country music during the time of that artist's work, taking on any of these perspectives requires me, the writer and host of this show, to assume a voice that may or may not represent my personal feelings on whatever is being discussed. Let me just give you an example of what I'm saying. When I talk to you about the Leuven brothers, whose career was totally derailed by Nashville's attitude towards traditional country music in the 1950s, the things I say about the Nashville sound are not going to be very complimentary. Next week, when I start talking to you about Buck Owens, the things I say about the Nashville establishment in general are going to sound quite nasty. These are not necessarily my personal beliefs. In a few weeks, when I tell you about the Judds, some people are going to hear that episode and think I'm calling fans who want to hear quote-unquote real country music on their radios a bunch of whiners. And that's not what I'm doing either. All I'm doing is telling you a story, one little piece at a time, the only way I know how. I see why the confusion is there, because you're just listening to me talk. But if you must know, some of my favorite country music artists jumped headfirst into the Nashville sound, making some of the greatest music of their careers in doing so. You can't love Patsy Cline's music and hate the Nashville sound. You can't be a George Jones fan and hate the Nashville sound. And please don't write me to say that George Jones didn't use the Nashville sound because he was countrypolitan. That is a ridiculous made-up word for people who talked too much shit about the Nashville sound and then had to think of something else to call it after they realized they liked a lot of it. It's the same thing. For the record, I like most of the songs I used in the intro of this episode during the Ruined Country Music segment. If you think that segment was about me trashing all those artists, then you totally missed the point I was making. Conversely, I really do think Luke Bryan's music is trash. 
So you see, sometimes what I'm saying is what I, Tyler Mahan Co., personally believe, and sometimes it's not. You probably shouldn't spend any time worrying about it, though, because the only reason I'm saying it is to make the story work. What music I do or don't like definitely does not affect how this show gets made. The only agenda I have with this podcast is to attempt to document a little slice of history in each episode. I know that's going to be misunderstood by some percentage of listeners no matter what I say or do. I knew that before I even got started. But I do have the option of leaving these words here for those with ears to hear them, and that's what I'm doing now. And I know I told you in the liner notes of the Oki from Muskogee episode that my personal opinions will inevitably factor in to the content of this show. Yeah, that was me being honest with myself and with you about human nature. That wasn't me telling you that I'm constructing false narratives to build a version of history that I want to be true. My aim is objectivity. It seems impossible that anyone could ever understand how important it is to me to try and get these stories right. But let me just say that I know what it's like for someone to get your story wrong. I know exactly what that's like. I would never knowingly do that to another person. Celebrity or not, living or dead, doesn't matter. And the thought that I might do it on accident does actually keep me awake some nights. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. I love the babies in the cradle in New Orleans. The doctor kept a whip until the baby got me. Doctor whip until the baby got so. Mama said you couldn't smell no more. Lord go, doctor, ring the bell, the women in the alley. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. 